Well, would you stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to read verses 31 to 46. These are some of the final words of Jesus Christ before he is taken and put on trial and beaten and then crucified for sinners. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Let us hear God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me then they also will answer saying lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you then he will answer them saying truly i say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life amen Please be seated. Henry Norris Russell was a famous Princeton astronomer. He once gave a lecture where he spoke of the vastness, the sheer and utter vastness of the galaxy that we lived in. Afterwards, uh, a lady who had been at this lecture came up to him and asked him this question. She said this, If our world is so little and the universe is so great, can we really believe that God pays attention to us? It's a great question, having painted the vastness of the universe and of of the cosmos and of the galaxy, the Milky Way that we, we live in. This woman had begun to feel her insignificance. How can God... Who, who dwells in, in such eternity and, and, in, and, in, and in such a, a vastness of space? How can he pay any attention 
to human beings who live on the earth? Dr. Russell replied, that depends, madam, entirely on how big a God you believe in. It depends on ent- entirely on how big a God you believe in. It's a good question, isn't it? Does God pay attention to us? Does he take any notice of who we are, of what we do, of what we think, of what we say, of what we don't think, of what we don't say? What is the significance of our lives? Is there any significance to our lives? What we do this side of eternity? Our lives pass so quickly, don't they? We pursue this or that or the other. Our memories fade and and surely we have to ask ourselves among the six billion plus population of this world, do I, do you have any significance? Can what you say or what you do have any real meaning whatsoever? It's interesting in this passage that we are going to look at tonight in Matthew 25, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the end. If you have your Bible open and you flip back, you'll see that in chapter 24, it's a famous passage where Jesus has been telling his disciples about the signs of the close of the age. He talks about what he refers to as the abomination of desolation. He wants to prepare them for the the hour that is to come that will be unexpected. So he has the end in sight. And then what's interesting, in chapter 25, he tells two parables. He tells the parable of the ten virgins. And that, really, if you wanted to sum up that parable, it is this, you need to be ready. That unexpected hour of Jesus' return can come at any moment. And, And that parable of the ten virgins was five of them were ready and five of them were not. So be ready, he teaches them. And then he teaches another parable following that in chapter 25, verse 14 following. It's the parable of the talents. And that answers the question, well, how are we to be ready? Okay, I need to be ready. I need to be ready for this sudden and unexpected return of Jesus Christ. How should I be ready? What should I be doing? Well, using these talents that God has given us for his glory. And then in that context, we have this passage we're going to look at tonight in verses 31 to the end of chapter 25. And what is Jesus doing here as he tells this story of of him coming again in power, again that focus on his return and the sheep and the goats being divided? This is what he's saying. You need to be ready, parable of the virgins. This is how you're to be ready, parable of the talents. And this is the significance of being ready. The sheep and the goats. That what you do, this side of eternity, matters. If you take nothing other than this away tonight, then I'll be a happy man. That what Jesus is teaching, that what we say and what we do and how we use our time has ultimate significance. It has ramifications for eternity itself. He is answering that question in a a way like Henry Norris Russell did as well to that woman. God does notice. Yes, he has made the heavens and the stars and the cosmos, and it is vast beyond our comprehension. And yes, in terms of the whole cosmos, we are infinitesimal. And yet Jesus and God notices us. And there are things we can do that please him, and there are things that we don't do that won't please him. 
Notice four things with me from this passage. We see the coming of the Son of Man. Secondly, the criteria for the final judgment. Thirdly, the contrast between the sheep and goats. And fourthly, the consequences for us now. So first of all, do you notice, in these first verses, verses 31 and 32, we have this scene depicted of the coming of the Son of Man. Let me read them to you again. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This scene depicts the end of the world, the day of judgment, when Jesus Christ will return in glory and in power and in majesty. Notice some of the details briefly with me. First of all, he will come in glory. Did you notice that? When the Son of Man comes in glory. How did the Son of Man first come? Not in glory. (laughs) See the contrast? When Jesus first came, he came humbly. He was born to a nobody in a nobody's place. He was born to this Virgin Mary in this little town of Bethlehem in a manger. I'm not a great fan of C.S. Lewis, but he's quite quotable on occasion. And he says of the, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this. Now get your heads around this, okay? Because when you first hear it, you'll think that doesn't make sense. And then you start listening to it. You might be a bit dim like I am. It take, I've got to think things through a little bit. And then it'll suddenly dawn on you what C.S. Lewis is saying. He said this, that when Jesus was born, there was more in the manger than outside the manger. Did you get that? Think about the vastness of the cosmos. When Jesus Christ was born, there was more in the manger because the very one who had made the cosmos had been incarnated to become one of us. He came in humility, didn't he? He came as a nobody when he first came. But there's a contrast here because now we're thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ and he is going to come in glory. And almost certainly in what, what Jesus has in mind here is a passage in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where the Son of Man is depicted as coming with fearful and mighty and majestic glory. And you notice another detail, he's going to come in glory and all the angels will be with him. This is a, a picture of might, and of power his messengers his servants are with him can you imagine how fearful a moment that's going to be our world likes to depict angels as as these little babies these cherubs with wings fluttering about the bible depicts angels as fearsome warriors and jesus is going to come with all his angels he's going to sit on the throne we're told aren't we Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Of course, he's already sitting on the throne. But this act is an act of completion where his enemies will be put under his feet. Where the king of kings has come back to receive the glory that is worthy of his name. And notice in verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him. Every one. Every single human being, those that have died in the womb, those that have lived to a long age, those that have lived 2,000 years ago, those that will yet live before he comes, every single human being that has ever existed 
will be gathered before him. This is a picture of universal dominion, isn't it? As the king sits down and every human being is gathered before him. Notice one other thing about the coming of the Son of Man, and it's this. His word separates them. Who decides who are the sheep and who are the goats? Who, who, dis, who, who will divide this vast multitude of, of men and women and children that have, have lived throughout, throughout time? Jesus' word will. He will say, you are the sheep, go to my right. You are the goats, go to my left. And there's no movement between the groups. Do you notice that? The goats won't kind of go, I'm gonna, I'd like to vote again. I want to be with the sheep. No, no, no. It's Jesus who decides. When he puts you wherever you go, there is no movement between them. What am I trying to draw your attention to here? Simply this, that Jesus is going to come again. And his coming is going to be glorious. What has this got to do with significance? It's got everything to do with significance now. Because we live now in the light of that, don't we? We live now in the present in the light of that future reality that Jesus is going to come in glory. And everything we are and everything we do needs to be done and said and lived in light of that. That one day our maker, our savior is going to return and we are going to be among that vast multitude of living human beings who will be divided into the sheep or to the goats. I think this should actually be of great encouragement to Christians. The, coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ has always been for the church a source of great encouragement. That when we're down, we remember Christ is coming again. That when we're discouraged by the work of the church, Christ is coming again. That when we struggle with our own sinful lives, Christ is coming again to take us to be with him. I don't, don't know if you've ever been seasick. Have you ever been seasick? You have to be on a boat on the sea generally to be seasick. I once crossed, there's a, there's a small sea called the Irish Sea. It's between England and Wales and Ireland. And it's terribly rough. And you're there and it, the, I remember going out onto the deck on this boat, this large ferry, and it's going up and down and up. We tried to have dinner, my wife and I, and you're almost having to hold on to the table. It's like this, grabbing hold of the condiments as they're going everywhere. Do you know apparently when you're seasick, do you know the best thing to do? To overcome seasickness, you've got to look to a fixed point on the horizon. You stare intently because the boat and the sea is going everywhere, you need a fixed point on the horizon. And when you, when you fix your eyes on that point, your seasickness eventually will go. That's exactly what we need as Christians. We need to be reminded of a fixed point on the horizon. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory and in power. Whatever's going on in our lives, and I, I, this is the first time I've come to this church, I don't know what's going on in your lives, but if you're anything like Christians across the pond in the UK, lots of things are going on in your lives. Anxieties, doubts, struggles, sin, discouragements. We need this fixed point. We need to be reminded that one day Jesus will return in power. So first of all, notice here, the coming of the Son of Man. Notice, secondly, the criteria of the final judgment. How does Jesus, or rather, how will Jesus, divide up the sheep and the goats? 
What's the basis of his criteria in this, in this passage? How does he decide who are the sheep and who are the goats? Well, I don't, I don't know if you noticed in verse 35 and verse 42, we, they begin with that, that word for. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Or, verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. In other words, this is what distinguishes the sheep and the goat for Jesus. This is the criteria. And what is it? It is that the sheep do something and the goats don't. In fact, if you were to compare verse 35 to 40 and then compare it with verse 41 to 45, really there's only one difference. And it's the word no. With the goats, it's the negative. You did not do this. You did not do this. You did not do this. The sheep do some things. The goats do not do some things. So what is the criteria then? Jesus will judge us on what we do. He will judge us on on the time we have spent, on the words we have said, on how we've used our money. I'm going to go into a bit more detail on this in a minute. Judgment is on what we do. Now then, you might be sitting there going, oh, this is a good Presbyterian church. We're a reformed church. We believe in salvation by grace alone, in faith alone, through Christ alone. And I believe in that as well. You might be sitting there thinking, is this man, this dodgy man from Wales, teaching salvation by works? No, I'm not. Let me be clear. Salvation is only in Christ. It is only in the works of Christ. But when Jesus saves us, he doesn't leave us. He transforms us. So if you want to talk, and I'm going to get a little bit technical here. If you want to talk in in, in terms of justification, we're saved by grace. But if you go and read Ephesians 2, that wonderful passage about being saved by grace, how does he end in verse 10? We're saved by grace for good works. And so Jesus is actually looking at us holistically now. It is inconceivable, both theologically and in this passage and in the Bible, for someone to be justified and not be sanctified. When God does a work of faith and grace in your life, you will produce good works. You will start doing these things. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Let me repeat that again. We're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. And so here Jesus is saying the sheep are those that, yes, they've been justified by faith. But that justification has produced a transformation in their life where they have loved and served my people. And here's where we get into the specifics. Do you notice? Who are we to do these things to? The visiting in prison, the cup of cold water, the clothing of the naked, etc. in these passages. Who do we do them to? We do them to his brothers. We see that, don't we? Verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So here now we can say the criteria for, for who are the sheep and who are the goats are How did you treat the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ? How did you treat them? Did you clothe them? Did you visit them? 
Did you give them a cup of cold water? Did you befriend them? Did you love them? Did you spend time with them? Did you meet their needs? This is the criteria. And we can go even further. Do you notice how personally Jesus takes this? Do you notice, do you notice the language is very evocative? Jesus doesn't say, my church was hungry and you fed them. My brothers were hungry and you fed them. He doesn't say that. What does he say? I was hungry. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a cup of water. I was in prison and you visited me. And the sheep are bemused and they go, when did we do this? And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What's going on here? A number of things are going on here. The first one is, note how much Jesus cares for his church. How much Jesus cares for his church. Do you know what Jesus is looking out for in this world? He's looking out for how his brothers and sisters, his blood-bought brothers and sisters, his church are being cared for. He even notices when someone gives one of his people a cold cup of water. Isn't that amazing? Do you see how significant we're getting the significance of the church of Jesus Christ from this? This is what Christ deems as significant. My people. He uses it as the very criteria of judgment to separate the sheep and the goats. I think there's another wonderful thing going on here. Behind all of this is what we call union with Christ. Did you know when you become a Christian, you get united to Jesus Christ. You get him and he becomes yours. And that is an unbreakable, eternal bond. But that, that comes with it. That carries with it an implication. It means when you bless a Christian, you're actually blessing Jesus. I mean, if you, if, I, can I like to think I've got a fairly thick skin. So if after the sermon you want to give me a hard time, I hope I can cope with it. But you know, if you wanted to really raise my heckles, say something negative about my wife. Say something negative about my wife. And I will rise very quickly, probably sinfully, but nonetheless, I'll rise very quickly to defend her and protect her. You know why? Because we're united. Marriage is a small picture of this union relationship that we have with Jesus. And so if you say something positive about my wife, I, I take it positively. You say take something negatively, I'll take it negatively. You might say, well, I'm not saying anything about you, Andy. I was just telling something, saying something about your wife. But we're united, you see. And it's the same wonderfully with Jesus Christ. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, you look after my church, you're looking after me. You bless my church, you're blessing me. You love my people, you're loving me. This is the criteria that he uses. And notice just one final thing before we move on. Do you notice how he says in verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, the least, one of the most insignificant, perhaps one of the most useless Humanly speaking. We've all got them, haven't we? We've all got them in our churches. Christians who, who, who are takers and not givers. I'm sure you don't have them here at Smyrna. Christians that are takers and are not givers. That, that seem to just drain the church's resources. That are perhaps difficult to get on with. We get the, I know you don't have them over here. You know, in the UK, they're just brittle people. People who are not very personable, not very sociable. It's just difficult to love, aren't they? And yet they've been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, I don't, just, I don't just take note of the big, I don't just take note of the preachers. 
I take note of the least, of the least of my children who I have bought with my blood and how you treat them. I will, I will use that as a criteria to, to divide the sheep and the goats. This is the criteria. I'm going to apply it in just a few moments, but let me just ask you now, how are you treating one another? Are you loving one another? Are you, are you, are you blessing one another? Are you helping one another? Are you visiting one another? Because when you do... <laughs> It's as if you're doing it to Jesus himself. Thirdly, we've seen the coming of the Son of Man and the criteria of the final judgment. Thirdly, notice the contrast between the sheep and the goats. I'm going to be very brief here. And in, in a sense, incredibly obvious, but there's a very stark contrast, isn't there? Look, look at the sheep, first of all. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. What wonderful words. Can you imagine hearing that from your maker? Can you imagine when this, this son of man comes in glory with all his angels and we're trembling in our boots and he turns to you and says, come, you who are blessed by my father. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't stop there, does he? In verse 34, he goes on. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's not just saying, welcome into my presence. He's saying, welcome into my presence forever. This inheritance that I've been preparing for you from before the foundation of the world. I mean, this is, this human flesh can, can surely barely cope with this kind of privilege. That our God would say to, to, to us who are sinful, redeemed in the blood of Christ, inherit, come forever and be with me this parable is about how precious the sheep are to christ and here we see the ultimate preciousness as he will bless us with an invitation to join him forever and forever as wonderful as that is notice how terrible it will be for the goats verse 41 and these words should sober us depart from me can you imagine receiving those words when Jesus comes again? Can you imagine your maker looking at you and saying, I can't stand you in my presence. Leave me alone. Depart from me. Not only that, look what else are they told. You cursed. God curses the goats. Into the eternal fire, verse 41, prepared for the devils and his angels. Thrown into the eternal fire, grouped with the evil one and his minions, into eternal punishment. These are terrible words. The contrast could not be greater, could they? From the glories that await the sheep to the terrible cursings that await the goats. I like sport. And a few years ago, the Olympics were held in London, London 2012, and I avidly watched it. There was a race that caught my eye. I think it was the final of the women's 5,000-meter steeplechase. You know, when they run around the track several times and they've got to jump that big hurdle, and one of the hurdles has, a, has, a, has some water in it. And they went off and going at a fair pace. They had a few laps to go, and it was really gearing up. Who's going to get the gold medal? 
And a lady, I don't know her name, I don't remember it, I think she was German. She tripped and she fell. Not on one of the steeples, there was just the, the, the push of, of, of the people running. Someone caught her leg and she tripped and she fell. And of course, four years at least of training. This is her moment. Gold medal awaits her and she was a medal contender. And in a second, her life dream ends. Do you know what she did? She stayed on all fours. I'm not going to do it, don't worry. She stayed on all fours with millions watching and she smacked her hand on the ground and shouted, no, no, no. Over. Everything she'd hoped for, her dreams, came crashing down, quite literally, in her own body. No chance of catching up. No chance of gold now. And the regret and the frustration and the horror that was visible on her face and in her actions. How much worse will it be for the goats than it was for that woman? How much worse as they languish in hell forever and ever, having known that if they had just believed the gospel and loved the people that Christ had died for, given them a cup of water, visited them in prison, given them food when they were hungry, spent time with them when they were lonely, they would be enjoying the glories of heaven. This contrast highlights the significance, doesn't it, of our service for Christ now. Does what you do and what you say and who you are matter? Of course it does. Of course it does. Because ultimately, you will either be one of the sheep or one of the goats. Let me reiterate, there's no... There's no spiritual Switzerland. Did you know that? In World War II, Switzerland sat on the fence and remained neutral. When Jesus comes in his power, there's going to be no fence to sit on. No neutral ground. Leave me out of this one if you don't mind, Lord Jesus. Oh no, you're either in the sheep or in the goats. And there's no negotiation and there's no transfer between the camps. So which one are you going to be in? This is possibly... No, let me rephrase that. It's not possibly. This is one of the most important questions you need to answer in your life. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Have you believed Christ? Are you living for his glory? Are you serving his church? Which group will you be put in? Just finally then, as I, as I end, I wanted to draw out some applications for us from this to make some things a bit more explicit. I've got four, and here they are. What is significant in this world is Jesus Christ and his people. We need to have this regularly injected into us. What is significant in this world is Jesus Christ and his church and his blood-bought people. I'm not saying that there's not a healthy focus on the outside world. Diaconal ministries seeking to help and, and love the poor, seeking to take the gospel to those. Of course, that needs to be a focus. Absolutely, Jesus himself said, go into all the world. But let's not do it to the neglect of God's people. His blood-bought people. What a shock some people are going to have in the judgment day, don't you think? What a shock. As, as those that, are, that have been successful and affluent and prosperous, in this eyes world, presidents and prime ministers, CEOs of large businesses, will stand before the judgment seat and suddenly realize that everything they poured their life into, every success that they put on their mantelpiece, 
doesn't matter to God at all. I can imagine Bill Gates standing before God and God saying to him, micro what? I, I don't know what you're talking about, but did you see my pastor or my people serving faithfully in 2018 in Smyrna Presbyterian Church against odds, against difficulty, against trials, and they were loving my people? Don't give me micro something. That's what was important. This is what is significant, the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. And here is a gathering of the church. Here, it's right before you. God giving you people to love, to do something that will have eternal ramifications. After this very service, to turn to a brother or a sister and say, how are you doing? You want to meet for coffee this week? Can I bake you a cake? Whatever it is. Secondly, do you note the care, and I know I've said this already, but I must emphasize it again, the care Christ has for his people, even for the least of them. He is watching all of us. It should be a wonderful comfort to us that in times of blessing or in times of distress, in life and in death, our Christ is watching over us, seeing how we're being treated because he's going to use that as part of the criteria by which he will divide the sheep and the goats. Did you know how much as a church Christ cares for you? He loves you. He shed his blood for you. Romans 8 verse 32 says, how much more? What else could God do? He gave his only son. You are loved and cared by a wonderful savior. And you know what that means? It means when you get the cancer diagnosis, when your loved one gets, gets seriously ill, when you lose your job, when that college application doesn't come back positively, or whatever it is, you get the bad news, you can say, I know, I know that's tough. You're going to shed a tear. It's going to be tough. But you can say, but my God loves me. My Christ cares for me. A third application. The church is the most significant thing in the world. Christ cares for his people. Thirdly, this should be a motivation for us to bless his people, should it not? Because when you bless Christ's people, you are blessing Christ. Do not underestimate the significance of your giving in and to and with the church of Jesus Christ. And what I love about this list is Jesus doesn't say, you know, he doesn't say climb Mount Everest. He doesn't say go, go earn a million dollars. The list is so, anyone can do this. Give a cup of water to someone who's thirsty. Visit someone who's lonely. Give, give a shirt to someone who, who hasn't got clothes. This is really, any Christian can do this. Give a lift, bake a cake, spend half an hour chatting, write a card, give a word of encouragement, take an interest in someone. Just tell someone meaningfully, look them in the eye when they're going through a trial. I'm praying for you, brother. Let me know how I can pray better. Jesus Christ sees, Jesus Christ takes note, he is honored. But even more important than that, you're doing it to Jesus because you're doing it to his people. What a motivation to love his people, because by loving his people, you are loving Christ himself. Just a final application. This is how we're to be ready then. We're to serve and to love and to give to God's people. And this is the significance of being ready for his return. It is to Christ and through Christ to his people.
Is who we are and what we do significant in this life? Absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. What we do now, how we invest our talents, has real and lasting significance in eternity itself. Did you know the Vikings... I don't think the United States of America were, inv- were ever invited. Well, maybe you were. My history might be a bit dodgy. I know they went to Greenland, the Vikings. Anyway, the Vikings invaded Britain all those years ago. And the Vikings believed in an afterlife. They believed in, in what they called Valhalla. And to get into Valhalla, you had to die in battle. This is why they were such ferocious enemies. They actually were on a suicide mission. The Viking warriors wanted to die with a sword in hand because they believed it gave them immediate entrance into Valhalla. And you know what happened when they got to Valhalla? When they entered the halls of Valhalla, all the previous Viking warriors and all the Viking gods were gathered in feast and they would recount your deeds of victory and of valor on earth. And they would toast your deeds of victory and valor on earth they believed that their acts on earth had ramifications throughout eternity now of course the vikings were so very wrong there's no such place as valhalla and by dying with a sword in your hand it doesn't guarantee you entrance to anywhere but they were right weren't they in this that what we do now has eternal ramifications Who we are now, what we believe now, how we live our lives now, has eternal ramifications. So let me challenge you and encourage you at the same time as I close. Will you give your life to Christ? And I mean that more than just believing in him. Give your life to serving his people, to loving his people. Because it's the only really significant thing that has lasting, blessed implications. May God help us to love Christ by loving his people. Amen. Let's pray together. We bow before you, glorious King. We await that day when you will return in power and glory and majesty and all men, women and children are gathered before you and you Sit down on your throne with all your angels and you divide the sheep and the goats. Oh, oh Lord, that we would be among the sheep. Oh, that many, all here tonight, would believe in Jesus and live for him and so be found that day hearing those wonderful words, not those terrible words. Lord, help us to love your people wherever we meet them. Help us to bless them because in blessing the least of our brothers, And sisters, we're blessing you. May the world come to see and help us to believe that there is only one truly significant thing in this world and it's Christ and his church. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.